This is the second episode of the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. On this episode, we have Greg Everett from Catalyst Athletics. Greg is a weightlifting coach and owner of Catalyst Athletics, the author of Olympic Weightlifting, a complete guide for athletes and coaches, and director of the film American Weightlifting. When you think of weightlifting and weightlifting education in the United States, Greg is definitely at the top of the list. In this episode, we'll discuss three main ways to become a successful coach and athlete in the United States, general training plans, variation in training, the use of plyometrics in weightlifting, and training for the master's athlete. So thanks, Greg, for joining us. Um, we appreciate you coming on. Tell us a little bit about your move to Oregon, um, kind of uh, what you've coached, who you've coached, and um, you know any uh, kind of products or uh, books that you have out right now. Oh, move to Oregon. So we got here about a month ago, which was the timing was awful. Uh, because we had the national championships in, uh, where was it, Salt Lake City. And then uh, right before that, I had had a seminar on the East Coast, the Nationals, and another seminar. I don't remember where, but it was some other faraway place. And then I had to go down to uh, Columbia for Pan Ams, and then the next week moved to Oregon. So it was basically doing all that travel, plus shutting down the gym, plus trying to get this new house and gym all set up, you know, a state away. Uh, so that was rough, but we've been here for a month, love it. Uh, we got the gym all set up. Um, so we basically moved from a 5,000 square foot uh, commercial facility. So in other words, we were running not only our weightlifting team, but we were running, uh, you know, classes of various types, weightlifting classes, fitness classes, private training, that sort of thing. Uh, and now we've moved to about a 1,700 square foot space where it is strictly uh, a training facility for our competitive weightlifters. So in other words, we don't have um, clients, we don't have anyone who isn't uh, one of our competitive lifters training here. And that was a, a big part of why we wanted to move. We just wanted to get out of the gym business. I've been doing it for almost 15 years and, uh, you know, God love you, those of you who love that business, but it, it really wasn't for me. Um, and, you know, the whole reason we opened it in the first place was to provide a place for a weightlifting team. And we're at a point now where not only do we not need uh, to run that business in order to have the team, um, it's actually kind of counterproductive. It, it takes away a lot of time and energy that I'd be rather, uh, I'd rather be putting in something else. So, um, as far as products go, the third edition of my book, uh, Olympic Weightlifting, A Complete Guide for Athletes and Coaches, has been out for a few months now. Um, that is, for those of you who aren't familiar with the book, it's, I put it out originally in 2008, so this is the third edition now. Uh, the second edition came out at the end of 2009, so it was uh, about six and a half years between those editions, and it's a, a, a huge amount of, of change. It's not like your college textbooks where all they do is reorder the chapters just to confuse you so you have to buy the new one. Uh, it's a, a ton of new information, a, a lot of new illustrations, diagrams, photographs, um, 
and so it's it comes in at just under 600 pages you know as an eight and a half by 11 book so it's a pretty much anything you could possibly think of needing to know about weightlifting is in there and uh, if it's not in there it's on our website somewhere yeah i think that's that's one thing that you guys do almost better than usa weightlifting and probably better than usa weightlifting is just the the amount of content and the quality of content you guys have out there right now Uh, yeah. Well, we, I mean, when we started, you got to remember, two thousand six, two thousand five. There was nothing on the internet about weightlifting. USA Weightlifting had a website, but it was, uh, you, you know, now it's better. They've actually put a little bit of content. They have some articles, things like that, but it's still lacking in a lot of ways. Um, but back then, there was literally not one shred of information about what the snatch and clean and jerk were, let alone how to do them, how to learn them, teach them, whatever. Uh, and so there was that site, there was uh, Bud Charniga's website, where he had a couple, you know, maybe like half a dozen articles, um, some were, you know, translated from Russian text, some were his own. And then there was, you know, Mike Bergner's website, which at the time was basically just like this pale yellow wood document with a couple of pictures of the Rocky Mountains on it. So. That's, that was kind of the landscape online for weightlifting when I put out the Catalyst Athletics website. And the whole point was like, well, uh, you know, how are people supposed to learn how to do this stuff when, you know, there are 12 coaches in the whole country. You can't find them. If you don't happen to live next to one, you're kind of out of luck. So uh, I think we've done a pretty good job, you know, creating the opportunities for a lot of people to, uh, to learn that stuff. And it's, it's still to this day the number one source for people to steal information from and process their own. <laughs> I've, I think I've seen it. I think I've seen a couple instances. Um, so you, you talked about your uh, facility and moved to Oregon. Talk a little bit about, about what might be the goal of your, of your new facility, garage gym, and kind of where you want to take that. Yeah, so we, we did want to get away from that commercial gym business and be able to focus 100% on coaching our team. And I, I say our because my wife, Amy, uh, for those who aren't terribly familiar with us, uh, she coaches one of our lifters, uh, Jessica Lucero, who is um, holds all the American records um, in the 58 kilo class, snatch, clean, and jerk, and total. I think the, at the Olympic trials, she broke the total by like eight kilos or something insane like that. It had been the record for like 12 years. So, um, And then I coached the other lifters. And so we want to create a place where um, we can have that exclusive environment where it's only uh, you know these top-level lifters who are 100% dedicated to the sport. And by that, I mean... That, that's their life. They are weightlifters. They're trying to make uh, international teams, make Olympic teams, that kind of thing. So they, they are 100% focused on the sport. They're not recreational lifters or, you know, doing other sports and doing stuff on the side, whatever the case is. Um, and in order to do that, we really needed to relocate to a place that was a lot more affordable to live. So we, uh, until we moved, we were in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, as people know, Silicon Valley. And which is where I'm from. That's where I grew up. And aside from 10 years of my life where I bounced around to various places, that's where I've lived, you know, my whole life. Uh, but in the last, you know, five, six years in particular, the cost of living there has just gone up astronomically because 
all of these new tech companies have parked there, you know, Facebook, Google, Twitter, all these companies, you know, you guys all love your stuff, but uh, because of that, you know, I, our lifters couldn't even afford to live there anymore. It, it was literally impossible. I mean, a one bedroom apartment that was not nice and it was not even particularly close. It was, this was basically like as far away as you could get into a cheaper area is like 2,200 bucks a month. That's a cheap, crappy one bedroom apartment. Um, and so you, you can't expect a, a competitive weightlifter to be able to afford to live in a place like that unless they happen to be like a software engineer. And if they're a software engineer, they're not going to be, uh, you know, making a run for an Olympic team. It's just not feasible. So now we're in a position where, yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere, which is what we wanted. I mean, we, we can actually say I have to go into town now. Uh, and that's a, a legitimate phrase. Uh, but it, the cost of living here is, is far, far less. Um, and so, you know, lifters can afford to live here. They can afford to live on a combination of stipends from USDA weightlifting us, you know, some sponsors, do a little online programming on the side, whatever the case is, and be able to train, recover, you know, sports, metal, that kind of stuff full time, which is really what's necessary to, to lift at that level. Yeah, I mean, that makes it makes total sense from a competitive weightlifting side. And you talk a little bit about your team and they've been, you know, quite a force in USA weightlifting for some time and then even some on the international level. Um, I, I think there's now, I think, maybe you think otherwise, but there's three main areas that, say, a coach and team needs to be successful. I would say recruiting and then athlete development and then staying healthy. Um, can you kind of uh, pinpoint maybe any or all of those three that are, that are important or maybe touch on those topics? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. That the recruiting is a really huge one in the U.S. in particular. Um, because the, the U.S. model, by and large, is kind of you take whoever happens to walk through your door accidentally. Um, and sometimes, you know, Kendrick Ferris or Melanie Roach walks through your door. And sometimes someone like me walks through your door uh, and you're not going to be able to, to go as far. So that, that's a big part of it is, is it's almost luck of the draw. And we're competing against countries who are very good at um, recruiting suitable talent at the appropriate age. Um, and, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, you can produce long-term far better athletes when you have human beings who are, you know, physically and, and even psychologically well-suited for that sport. Um, you know, if, if you're, uh, you know, channeling that talent into the, the proper activities, you can go a lot farther. And we have a lot of other... Um, athletic avenues for our, our potential weightlifters to travel down, you know, football, wrestling, gymnastics, baseball, you know, all, all these different sports that offer uh, not only the, the potential for getting paid as a professional, but college scholarship opportunities. And then just, you know, real simply, just opportunity to play. Um, you know, as a kid growing up in the U.S., you're exposed to those sports. I mean, even seemingly obscure stuff like lacrosse. Uh, I mean, I'm from the West Coast. I know lacrosse is a lot bigger East Coast, but it's still a relatively small sport compared to, say, football or baseball. But you can play that in high school. You can play that in club sport, even in California, um, which, you know, weightlifting, you basically just have to get lucky and 
be around someone who does the sport. You're certainly not going to run into it in school unless you happen to be in like one of the five high schools where like, you know, Kevin or Paul Doherty works or, you know, Mike Bergner, John Thrush, Bob DeCano, CJ Stockel, those guys worked and had weightlifting programs. It's very unusual. So yeah, number one, recruiting, that's tough. And, and it's getting a little bit easier now that more people are, are knowing what weightlifting is, but it's still a, a very obscure sport. And there's very little to entice someone to leave another uh, sport for weightlifting. Basically, you're, you're promising them a lifetime of poverty and obscurity. Um, so, you know, they, they have to genuinely love it. Um, it. It can't, there can't be any question about that, otherwise they're, they're gone. And even if they do love it a lot of time, they have to leave. Uh, they graduate from high school, they graduate from college, they move, whatever it is, and all of a sudden they have no more opportunity to do the sport. Um, so long-term development is another one too, where if you're not recruiting athletes at the appropriate age, which for weightlifting, you, you'd be looking at that kind of eight to 11 uh, time frame, And in those first couple of years, typically you're gonna be um, primarily some uh, general physical preparation or you're doing a, a, a really wide variety of physical activities. You're, you're developing a foundation um, of motor skills and capacity to allow that athlete to then specialize in a sport later down the line. You're not training them at eight years old, you know, in snatch and clean and jerk really. Uh, but if you start at that appropriate age, you can spend 10 years uh, basically developing that athlete stage by stage in accordance to the natural kind of biological stages as those kids progress. So, you know, you're, you're training um, and preserving mobility from a time when you know they have naturally a lot of mobility, rather than trying to recover mobility that's been lost for ten years, um, you are training, um, you know, motor skills, and along with that, the ability to learn more motor skills better, quickly, all that kind of stuff down the line. Uh, at times when they are, uh, you know, able to learn those, it's like learning a language. You can do it much more easily as a young child than you can as an adult, because as an adult you get plastic and you're, you're less and less useful all around for the most part but uh you know it's so that that's a, a huge thing we're losing too is that when we get a, a lifter at the age of 25 you know people uh, someone will talk to me about weightlifting and i'll say yeah you know you know we get these lifters that are way too old you know they're like mid-20s they look at me like i'm an idiot like 25 you know 25 is not old i was like yeah that's old as hell for a, a starting weightlifter that's really old um, and there are occasional exceptions to the rule, like you have a guy like Colin Burns who came into the sport at a late age and has done very well, but he also had a really unusual um, athletic background. I mean, he was like, um, uh, I believe he was a, a, a resident at the Olympic Training Center for judo. So, I mean, he was a high-level athlete and something that wasn't completely contrary to weightlifting. It's not like he was a, a distance runner or something like that, which would have contributed absolutely nothing. Um, but so when we get someone at that age, we're basically trying to compress all of those stages and, and do everything simultaneously in as quick of a window as possible. And, you know, it, it shouldn't seem strange to anybody that that's not as effective as being able to do that stuff over a longer period of time that exploits, you know, the natural developmental processes of a, a kid. Um, and then the final one, I can't believe I remember all three of these. I was, I was thinking... I was thinking the same. I, I was wondering, like, is he going to remember all of them? <laughs> uh, 
someone healthy, that's a big part of it too. And that's a big issue we have uh, in the U.S. is um, having the financial support um, for sports med and for medical insurance for weightlifters. Um, in other words, you, know, you have someone who, let's say, they're getting a couple stipends. You know, they're getting a stipend from USA Weightlifting for being ranked really high. Maybe they're getting a stipend from their team or, or you know, a sponsor or whatever. But that's still, they could be uninsured, uh, you know, so if, let's say, they, they tear something, um, they may not be able to afford to go get an MRI, uh, let alone get it treated. So there, there's a lot of issues with that, and um, it becomes really, really critical to avoid that kind of injury as much as possible. Um, and then, uh, you know, to, to avoid these, these tens of thousands of dollars in potential costs if, if you don't have insurance or, you know, you're never going to. You know, you're not going to have a kickstart and be like, I need a, an MRI for my shoulder and then a $85,000 surgery. It's, you know, you guys can all contribute $1. Uh, and so you, and on top of that, you have just the, the day-to-day maintenance. So you need to be able to get, you know, chiropractic adjustment, uh, you know, massage, uh, the all kinds of manual therapy, you know, the ART, grasped and that, that kind of stuff. And stuff's really expensive. I mean, I think people kind of forget how much of an issue that is and if you are training uh you know six to 12 times a week you, that stuff's necessary and you, you have to have that maintenance stuff on a regular basis you can't get a massage once every three months um and expect that to really be helpful i mean it's better than nothing but it's it's not really going to go too far so yeah there, there are a lot of things that make it very very difficult for us to to be extremely competitive on the international stage with the the circumstances we're in yeah i mean i i agree do you i guess with that said do you think that the usa weightlifting or maybe even any clubs in the united states are working towards that or maybe what they could be doing to work towards that yeah well usa weightlifting has has had a stipend program for decades um and so that's a good start but they've they've updated the stipend program uh, the new ones kick in in August, I believe, and so it's considerably more money. Um, and it's, I mean, you can, if you are one of the very top ranked lifters, you can make a good chunk of money. So it's, it's, it's nothing to sneeze at. Um, we had Muscle Driver, who was, aside from York, you know, like back in the, the you know, decades ago. Yeah. Um, they were kind of the first um, team to really provide a legitimate stipend. Um, to their athletes where they weren't doing something in return secretly so really instead of a stipend it was just a way to pay employees without having to pay payroll taxes and workers comp insurance and all that kind of stuff there are at least one example I can think of that I won't name names Uh, but of course we saw what that whole thing imploded um, because I think they well there was a number of problems behind that I, I won't air anyone's dirty laundry but uh, one of the issues not from uh, you know out, outside of um, you know mistakes that were made with the business itself I think they just got way overextended they took on a lot more than they could handle and I think kind of overestimated um, you know how much had the popularity of the sport and kind of how well they were going to be able to replenish their coffers every year in order to keep paying all these athletes and coaching, they just kept bringing on more and more and more, and it just, I think, was unsustainable from the start. Um, and so, uh, you know, now you have a couple people popping up here and there 
who are starting to offer a little bit of money to their lifters. We've done it in the past with certain lifters. Uh, just, uh, for example, we've helped her out uh, throughout the years and other lifters, you know, we, we paid performance bonuses and, and helped with, uh, you know, competition travel costs and things like that here and there. Um, we'll have a more, um, uh, you know, regular kind of stipend program in place now. Uh, and there's a couple other clubs who are doing that now, though, you know, various amounts of money and, and stability. So it's, it's not an easy thing to do. You know, it's not like there are, there's just like this abundant amount of money flowing in to weightlifting where we can just throw it around um, right. and not be concerned about maintaining it long-term. So it's, it's tricky. You, you, know, you really have to have a long-term plan and, and be, because you can't promise a lifter like, hey, you need to quit your job, uh, take a break from school because we're going to pay you to lift when you can't be sure you're going to be able to do that for at least a few years. Uh, you know, that's that's really unfair to an athlete to kind of put them in that position where their future is so uncertain. Yeah, and, and even at the top level, you mentioned stipends um, and everything like that. Uh, at the top level, even the top U.S. lifters are not making any money if they come in first. So it's, it's not like the person who's giving them stipend is getting really any return either. Um, I find that a hard part as right. well. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll move yeah, into, you know, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the USA weightlifting stipend, there's, that's, you know, in a sense, that's strictly altruistic. You know, it's, it's USA weightlifting is supporting the lifters and trying to help them develop as well as possible and get to the top. But in any other case, um, you know, you're, you're pretty much looking at sponsorship money, uh, for companies who want something in return so that that lifter has to continually get better they have to be very visible um you know because they're they're a walking advertisement is what it comes down to and so weightlifting not being a particularly visible sport it's not many sponsors are interested you know and i, I hate to say this i don't want to sound crass but what it comes down to is that sponsors want to uh hook up with young attractive women Right. And those are the weightlifters that you're seeing getting sponsorship money because they can sell them. They can post pictures of, uh, you know, good looking girls and they get people on the Internet for a number of reasons, not all of them noble, who follow them. Whereas you can have, uh, say, a male weightlifter who is one of the best in the country, but let's say he's got awful ugly and, and, you know, no woman wants to look at him on Instagram. Well, guess what? You're out of luck. You're not going to get any money. Uh, and that's, that's not just weightlifting, but it, it's it's worse in weightlifting because it's not a visible enough sport with a big enough audience um, to for a sponsor to be able to lie, rely strictly on weightlifting spectators to drive enough sales. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, we'll we'll move into maybe more uh, training related questions here. Um, okay. I, I think your, if I'm not mistaken, your probably biggest influence has been Mike Bergener. Um, and it would make sense that a lot of your training ideas and plans do derive, um, from him, but how have they evolved over the years and what right now, I guess, what are your, uh, training plans look like and do you pull from any international systems or kind of how are you, uh, meshing all of those things into one? Uh, well, yeah, uh, Berger definitely has been my 
biggest influence. Obviously, he was my weightlifting coach and uh, you know a mentor in many respects for me as as kind of a young coach. Um, and I think and this is a point I've made numerous times that uh, that was kind of the origin. But so much of what I do now doesn't look a whole lot like what he did with me um, because I have had a lot of other influences now and you know learned from other places and people and things like that. But there are still a lot of things um, that I can trace directly back to him. And, you know, they're not necessarily technical elements of, you know, program design or lift technique. It's, it's more um, kind of the, the way that I interact with lifters, the environment in the gym, you know, that kind of culture that we build and nurture. I think those things more than any other element are really what I brought from Mike Bergner. Um, and as far as, you know, what, you know, my programs and that thing look like, it's, it's a mix of all kinds of, of stuff. It's a mix of Mike Bertner's stuff, which was, you know, a mix of his coach, you know, Father Lang at uh, Notre Dame and, you know, all these other influences that he had. And then, uh, you know, the Soviet system, the Bulgarian system, the Chinese system, all these different systems, the, you know, Cuban, Colombian, all, all this stuff, you know. The, the, the bottom line is that there are, uh, you know, a handful of kind of principles and elements that are universal to all of these quote-unquote systems. Um, and each thing, it, it kind of is adapted in these various countries dependent on the types of athletes they have, the, the various training circumstances. So, you know, when they're recruiting them, how they're recruiting them how long they have to develop them, how many lifters they have. In other words, can they just uh, have a sausage factory where they run 300,000 lifters through and they break, you know, 299,990 of them to end up with a 10-person squad who's like the greatest lifters of all time? Um, you know, you can have a very different system in that situation than you can when you have to hang on to every single athlete who walks through your door because that's all you're getting. Um, so any, any kind of resemblance to any of those more formalized systems, um, you know, it, it has to be modified quite a bit, um, because we're, we're taking a system where we have ideal recruiting, long-term development opportunities, financial support, and, um, you know, pretty regular drug use. And we're trying to apply that to, uh, you know, people who are not full-time lifters, they have jobs, they go to school, whatever, they're not on drugs. They're usually starting at later ages and coming into it with various, um, you know, degrees of kind of athletic foundations. So you can't you can't put an American lifter on the legitimate Chinese weightlifting system or the Bulgarian weightlifting system or the Soviet system, whatever it is. It will not work. You will blow them up uh, in very short order, and they're not really going to get any better. Uh, it really does have to be modified, and, and the more that we uh, you know, change those things that we were just talking about previously about recruiting and long-term development, the closer we can get to those kinds of systems, but it's still a long ways off. Sure. I know that, that wasn't a perfectly direct answer of your question. But. No, I mean, I mean, it's, uh, that's the answer. That's, that's all right. Um, so, you know, you've got your team at Catalyst and, and potentially an almost brand new team. I know you've probably done a lot of correspondence in the last month or so when you've moved, but um, at what point do you feel that athletes need an individual plan and when it, when it might be appropriate to plan 
uh, for a team. And, uh, you know, if you do plan for a team, how much of the program should be the same and how much should be different for different athletes? That, that's a really good question. Um, and it's there, uh, the answer really depends on a lot of different things. But the way I look at it is this, uh, there are very clear benefits to having a single team program. And the, the number one benefit of that is you have that sense of solidarity and camaraderie where, you know, everybody has to do a three rep max push press today. And they're all groaning about it together, but then they also have that, um, you know, internal competition where they all want to outdo each other. And so you, you get a lot of great things coming out of that um, with lifters pushing themselves harder in a lot of times because they want to beat each other. So that, that's the number one, you know, most important thing about having a team program. That being said, the problem is that in any given team, you're going to have a huge amount of variety and it's nearly impossible. I, I would argue that it's, it's not possible to have a single program for a team of lifters and have that be the most effective it can be. I don't think that's that's possible. And uh, there are, are teams who have done it, um, and I completely disagree with it. I think that once you get past kind of that intermediate, late intermediate stage, you really do need a lot of individualization, um, especially in, you know, with the athletes we're dealing with. Let's say you go to China and you have an extremely homogenous population. Um, and by that, I mean, Genetically speaking, you have uh, a room full of athletes who are largely built very similarly. Um, they were developed similarly, you know, from a young age. So they have that same, you know, technical and uh, physical capacity, you know, foundation. You can train them very similarly. doesn't mean they don't need a little individual variation here and there, but you can get a lot closer to a single program. Whereas if you come here, you know, if I have six of my lifters in the gym, I mean, you couldn't even tell they're from the same planet. I got, you know, a girl who's four foot eleven. I got a girl who's, you know, three hundred fifty pounds. Uh, you know, you have the entire range of people who have zero athletic background prior to weightlifting. You have ones who were, uh, you know, collegiate throwers. So you, you can't apply a single program to them. It just will not work well. Um, and so then you run into that trouble where, as a coach. You know, the bigger your team, the more programs you have to write, which is really time-consuming. It's really stressful, um, and, and it can be very difficult to do well because it's just so much work. Um, and then, of course, you lose that kind of internal competition and, and that uh, you know sense of camaraderie we had. We talked about it a second ago, where people are doing the same thing at the same time. That's kind of nice. That being said, I think that with a collection of individual programs. If you have a proper team environment um, through, you know, good coaching leadership, through, you know, selecting the right kind of people on your team who know how to, um, you know, behave well and kind of encourage people, it's not really an issue. It's a, you look at a football team and you have, um, you know, the, the players are all broken into, you know, um, different positions or offense, defense, and then within that, you know, they're, the running backs are working together, the quarterbacks are working together, but they're still a team. They still function as a team, even though their training is different, their drilling is different, that's that kind of thing. So you, you kind of have more of that feel. Uh, and so every, even, uh, you know, now the only people I'm coaching, obviously, are, are kind of the national plus level lifters. But when I had that whole mix where I had those 
high level competitive lifters and then I had uh, a group of lifters who were not at that level yet. Uh, but I, you know, for whatever reason, I saw potential in them, so I took over their coaching and pulled them from the classes. Those uh, more beginning intermediate lifters, I wrote them a single program. And then day to day, we would make little changes as needed. So if someone, you know, had some kind of pain or injury or, you know, for whatever reason, they couldn't do a certain, let's say I had behind the neck something and they, they just can't do it, they don't have the mobility. Okay, well, we're going to change that or, you know, whatever the case is. So you can, you can individualize kind of on a, a micro scale day to day rather than actually writing individual programs. Um, and that way you kind of, you save yourself a lot of time and energy. You kind of build that sense of team with those newer lifters because they're all training together. I mean, we had guys, they had like a running uh, wager every day and they would, they would figure out you know, who won based on percentage of, it's like a percentage of improvement based on their one rep max of whatever exercise it was, you know. So, they're, you know, they're talking about two, three dollars at a time, but like that really kept them motivated and things like that. So that's the good thing about having that single program. Yeah, um, that's a lot of what we do here. We have a, almost solely every one of our team members is, um, has a full-time job or is in school. And so we, we find it uh, pretty uh, almost better to do a team and deviate like you say when needed if people have different events or different meets coming up or little minor injuries here and there and for us it's worked pretty well but we do have a couple athletes on the cusp of making say American Open national level and and we have thought of uh, you know deviating and doing some individualized programming because of it as well um so it, it, it's it really does you can keep it case by case so yeah um so if maybe more specifically into say your program and i realize within the year it changes quite a bit um but what what is your typical say mesocycle microcycle length do you keep it very calendar um, monthly, seven days kind of deal, or is it change depending on what type of emphasis you have on the cycle? It, uh, well, microcycle is always seven day a week. I mean, that's, I've, I kind of wrote about this like in my certification program, like technically a micro, micro cycle could be as many days as you want, but seven days is the only thing that really makes sense from a practical standpoint. Like it's, it's confusing enough to handle these, these, you know, big programs, especially multiple programs. When you start doing like a six-day microcycle or a four-day microcycle, it's just a nightmare. Uh, and I don't, I don't really find any reason to do that. Although I'm sure someone could show me, wow, this worked really well for me. So if you want to handle that, go ahead. I don't. Um, the mesocycles are definitely going to change based on where we are in the competition calendar and. Um, kind of the you know the related thing of what exactly we're working on so generally I, I would love if all of our mesocycles could be a nice even four weeks at a time that would be fantastic we could do four week mesocycles and then macro cycles that were 12 to 16 weeks a piece that's like really just convenient and simple and, and it makes life so simple um, but it, it's unfortunately the competition calendar very rarely works out that way um, and so if we have, you know, we're early on, uh, like a preparation mesocycle. So we're, we're working kind of more volume, uh, more reps, 
you know, complexes, you know, more strength emphasis versus the com- competition emphasis. We may have uh, longer mesocycles, you know, up to like six to eight weeks even, uh, potentially with like one, you know, partial sort of deload in there somewhere, but not like a complete um, back off week. Because, you know, with that higher volume, we're, we're looking at uh, generally, you know, much smaller week to week increases in intensity and especially let's say like this is a good example right now is that we're coming off the national championships and so um, I give people basically a week off after nationals they, they still train a couple days but it's I call it ladies choice week where they they pretty much do whatever they want as long as it's easy and it's fun um, but then to build back up that first couple weeks especially is going to be very light and so I'm not going to have a four-week mesocycle where the first two weeks are super easy and I only have one week that's even considered a burdening week and then back off. So you can stretch that out six, seven, eight weeks sometimes. Um, as we get farther along, uh, you know, closer to a competition, we're pretty typically going to have a four-week meso. Uh, but again, if the competition calendar is such that we have to go five weeks or three weeks, we'll do it. Uh, and then it depends too on the lifter. So with some lifters, I know that I can push them hard for three weeks. With other lifters, I might only be able to push them hard for two weeks. And so it, it's, it really depends on all those different elements coming together. Um, but it, I guess the way I look at it is, it starts with the four week mesocycle and then uh, I adapt it from there rather than uh, anything else if that makes sense sure yeah um, and and within your mesocycles are you do you have any um, say specific progression of strength power strength power or are you um, if that makes sense or do you go strength strength power power how are you blocking those or again is it dependent on the athlete No, I mean, generally speaking, what we're going to have is uh, one to two mesocycles that I would consider preparatory, um, which will be kind of uh, more oriented for, you know, accumulating volume, uh, building strength in your general movements, your squats, pulling variations, pressing variations, you know, overhead strength variations, where the, you know, the competition lifts. We may do the full lifts, you know, once a week each, um, but not heavy. We're probably going to do reps with them. We're going to do variations like hang, block, or complexes, things like that. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have probably one um, competition mesocycle where that emphasis shifts to uh, the competition lifts. And so that's going to be where the majority of the volume comes in, snatch, clean, and jerk full lifts we, we still probably do some variations in there but the emphasis is on the full competition lifts and uh you know we're still going to have squatting and pulling and, and some things like that but there the volume of those will be much much uh smaller and um, the intensity will be relatively easy to allow us to really push the competition lifts and kind of strip away that fatigue from the, the preparatory cycles uh and bring up those competition lifts to to get ready to peak for a competition um, there may be a mesocycle kind of in between that real pure preparatory and pure competition cycle. It's kind of a transition period where it's more of a mix between the two. Um, but that that largely does depend on the athlete um, and somewhat on the competition uh, calendar. Sure. Um, so you talked a little bit about doing some variation in there from blocks, hang. 
so on and so forth. What What's your take on variation in training in general? And then when you look at, say, novice versus elite, um, and, and how you're using variation to maybe what you're prescribing to a novice versus what you're prescribing to an elite, uh, and then in general as well. It, well, this one again, I think, and largely um, your exercise selection is going to depend on the individual athlete's needs. But in, in a real general sense, um, I, I do think that variety um, is important in, in certain respects. Like you need, um, I don't think that many lifters can go long-term snatch, clean, and jerk, front squat only. Uh, that will work for periods of time. Um, but unless you have someone who is coming into that already very well balanced in terms of strength, technique, um, and then in, in the direct sense, you know, symmetrical and balanced in terms of muscular development, mobility, that sort of thing, that's not going to work long term. Uh, you're going to have to go back and get the, the variety of exercises, um, you know, rep ranges, intensity ranges, that sort of thing. So for a beginning lifter, uh, I don't think variety is particularly important because you're basically having to build uh, competence in these basic lifts. They've got to learn snatch, clean, jerk, you know, front squat, back squat, overhead squat, push, press, press, that kind of thing. And in order to do that well, they have to have a lot of frequent, regular exposure to those lifts. So if you start throwing in a huge amount of variety where they're, you know, they're practicing 50 different exercises, uh, I think you end up taking much longer, a uh, much longer time to develop competence in those those basic lifts than if you kind of stuck with those uh, by and large uh, and develop them from the start. That doesn't mean you're going to not use other exercises during that time. You know, you're going to use other things. You know, for strength. And again, that's where the individual stuff comes in. If you have a lifter who uh, you know, they just can't do snatch pulls correctly. You may have to use some weird exercise like a halting snatch deadlift or, you know, a segment snatch pull to address whatever issue they have, whether it be, um, you know, technique, uh, technique related or, you know, strength and posture related before kind of transitioning into emphasizing that basic lift you were trying to do in the first place. That intermediate lifter, um, you're probably going to get a little more variety because they'll, they'll have you know, your competition lifts and the basic lifts down a little bit better. Uh, and then you want some variety in there, um, you know, to, to kind of goose along that stimulus. But again, I think it's easy to get carried away with that and just go for variety for novelty's sake. And I, I think that's an easy mistake to make. Like, wow, this, these exercises are cool. They look fun. They look interesting, exciting. I saw my favorite lifter do it on YouTube yesterday. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be good for you or helpful for you. It could be totally counterproductive for you, in fact. Um, and so making good choices when it comes to that kind of stuff is really important and not necessarily easy to do. Sure, yeah. I think, uh, I think in my opinion, spot on because I think variety, like you say, for variety's sake, is uh, you're taking the time to get good at something you don't necessarily have to get good at. So, you know, you talk about variety in training as well. Um, you know, what are your views on plyos jumping and how useful do you think they are in weightlifting and maybe the application side of it? Uh, I think jumping is hugely important for weightlifting. Um, and, and that's one of those things that, uh, going back to the, 
the recruiting and long-term development issue, that's one of the things that uh, it largely is not um, developed well in our weightlifters here because of their late start. Um, so if, if you have a kid starting at the proper age, that's one of the huge things that they're going to be doing is jumping um, and sprinting type activities to develop that base of you know explosiveness and elasticity and things like that, which are much harder to develop later in life. Um, and so I will implement um, box jumps, you know, back squat jumps, quarter squat jumps, um, depth jumps sometimes for certain athletes, uh, um, you know, to like uh, two leg bounding, that kind of thing at various times because it's wildly important. Now, the, the trick though is that that stuff is deceptively taxing on the body. Um, it doesn't feel like it at the time. You know, you do a bunch of box jumps, you do some depth jumps in particular, which will really take the starch out of your britches. Uh, and it doesn't seem like you really did much. And so I think people have a habit of overdoing it. You know, they're going to be squatting their faces off, but then doing a bunch of depth jumps and then doing box jumps and doing all these things. And it just, it, you can blow yourself out. So uh, last thing here is Masters Weightlifting. You've mentioned that weightlifting in general has become far more popular, especially among, say, relatively older athletes and getting into the 35-plus range. Masters Weightlifting has really boomed. Um, you know, and I think a lot of Masters guys and women, you know, kind of think they can handle what the young guns can handle. And so what do you think about on Masters, say, volume, intensity, frequency, and so on? Well, and this this question is tough because and I get this question all the time. Is I'm a master. Is how much volume and frequency should I be doing? Well, I don't know because first of all, master starts at 35 and ends at infinity. So I mean, that's a huge range of, of ages and potential backgrounds and uh, recovery abilities and uh, even you know hormone replacement therapy status you know what I mean so that's not necessarily legal in competition but it's it's happening with a lot of masters so it's it, you can't give a straightforward answer to that but generally speaking if you are 35 years or older you will not be able to train with as much uh, volume frequency and average intensity as a 20 year old like you you just have to accept that um, you know you can fight it psychologically all you want I had some guy who was on Facebook maybe like two years ago arguing about an article Matt Foreman posted like oh no it's all in your head this is so stupid you just you know you just aren't working hard enough and no this is basic biology um, basically once you turn 30 you're dying already so it, you just can't escape it don't pretend that it's in your head um, you definitely can help it by focusing more and more on uh, restorative activities, you know, getting adequate sleep, reducing stressors in your life, uh, proper nutrition, that sort of thing. But you're not magically going to recover the same way at age 40 as you did when you were 23. Um, so I, my suggestion to masters lifters is to start really conservatively and build their weight up as tolerated rather than say starting at five days a week, you know, with 500 reps a week and finding that's too much and then trying to cut down. Because once you've found that's too much, you've already kind of dug yourself into a hole. So each subsequent reduction is not a, a real um, accurate evaluation of your response to it because you're going into it already uh, in, in a partial state of fatigue. So if you start 
you know, three days a week with a small amount of volume, 150, 200 reps, whatever it is. And then you build up from there. You know, once you find you can handle that, you can more accurately find, uh, you know, the actual amount of volume and the frequency of training that you can manage well. Yeah. Um, no, I think in, in general, I think those are probably pretty good guidelines. I think there are a lot of masters athletes that, you know, might think otherwise, like you say, they're maybe stubborn, hard headed, or maybe think they can train, you know, exactly like they did when they were a kid. Um, or maybe don't know what training feels like. So uh, they, they just keep going. Um, but that's, that's all the questions I have, Greg. Um, what I'd like, you know, take this time. I want you to tell people where they can find you. Um, you know, maybe if you're still recruiting athletes, I know you were at some time for your new facility, um, you know, your website, books, DVDs, kind of anything you want to share with, with maybe the two listeners that we have. <laughs> well, after this one, you're going to have at least three. Uh, yeah, catalystathletics.com uh, is our primary website, and you can find everything we do from there. Um, that site has a ton of free articles, like some like 400 articles. We've got like 1,100 videos. We have all kinds of stuff, um, programs, workouts, some free, some paid. Uh, so go there first. Uh, you can get my book from there. You can get it from Amazon, uh, any of the European Amazon ones, if that's closer to you. Um, AmericanWeightliftingFilm.com is the documentary we put out a couple years ago. Uh, and PerformanceMenu.com is the monthly journal that we put out. So we got all kinds of fun stuff for you to enjoy for free and or spend money on. So um, please enjoy it. All right, man. Thanks, Greg. We appreciate it Thank again. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks.